And so, uh, Joshua chapter 24, I'm going to begin reading at verse 14 and read through verse 28. This is after um, the Israelites have uh, come into the land of Canaan and they've conquered it. And uh, these are kind of Joshua's parting words uh, before his death uh, to try to set the people uh, on the right path as they begin this new um, adventure of seeking after the Lord uh, in the promised land that they've been long awaited for. And now God has brought it to fulfillment, that promise uh, made long ago to their father Abraham. And uh, so Joshua 24 beginning at verse 14. Listen now to the reading of God's holy word. Now therefore, fear the Lord. Serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve whether the gods which your fathers served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So the people answered and said, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For the Lord our God is He who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, from the house of bondage, who did those great signs in our sight and preserved us in all the way that He went, that we went, and among all the people through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out from before us all the people, including the Amorites who dwelled in the land. We also will serve the Lord, for He is our God. But Joshua said to the people, You cannot serve the Lord, for He is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions nor your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then He will turn and you and do you harm and consume you after he has done you good and the people said to Joshua no but we will serve the lord so Joshua said to the people your witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the lord for yourselves to serve him and they said we are witnesses now therefore he said put away the foreign gods which are among you and incline your heart to the lord god of israel and the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God will, we will serve, and His voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, and made for them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. Then Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the oak that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. So Joshua, let the people depart, each to his own inheritance. Seek the Lord's blessing on this, his holy word. <coughs> Gracious God in heaven, we... We do praise you and thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the opportunity that we have to once again come and to study your word, to consider this particular topic this evening. And we just pray that you would give us understanding and insight, that you would help us to see the truth, that you would teach us, and that you would draw us all close to yourself, that we might be better equipped to be faithful servants 
to bring glory to your name in all that we do. So we ask now for your blessing upon our time. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. We believe in free will. Now this may come as a surprise if you're aware of the various debates between uh, reform teaching and, and uh, Arminianism. But it's true. As Christians who have a reformed or Calvinistic view of the Bible and salvation, we believe in free will. That Westminster Confession of Faith even devotes a whole chapter on the subject of free will. Now we do, though, reject the what we might call the free willism uh, that's so common in much of the evangelical Christianity today. That a man's will is completely free and unhindered from any and all conditions, even to the point where it seems possible that man would exert power over God and over God's will, over God's purpose, and over God's design. This we do reject, as we'll see. But again, we don't reject the biblical understanding of freedom or liberty of man's will. And so in uh, chapter 9, paragraph 1 of the Confession says this, that God has endued the will of man with that natural liberty, that it is neither forced nor by any absolute necessity of nature determined to do good or evil. So God has given mankind a will, and that will is naturally at liberty or free. Now this means that no one can force a person to, to do anything. Right? He can't be compelled to do something that uh, we can't be compelled to do something that we don't want to do. So right away we see that this discounts any obstacle between God's sovereign decree and, and man's responsibility. Mankind has a will that's free. It can't be forced or compelled, neither by another man, neither by Satan, or by God. And so a person can't use the excuse, well, he made me, or she made me, or the devil made me do it, or even God gave me no choice. No one can force your hand. You're fully responsible for your own actions. But this liberty isn't absolute. And this is part of the big divide between a Reformed understanding and an Arminian understanding of free will. The Arminian will argue that this liberty is absolute. That is, it's fully without restraint or conditions. But this isn't our understanding of free will and liberty. Liberty isn't the same as ability. Having the freedom... To do one thing or the other isn't the same as actually being able to do it. So there's no limits to man's liberty, but as we'll see, there's a limit to his ability. Ability is intimately tied to man's moral nature. Man's will or desire is a part of, uh, is a part of his soul. And so the will can't escape the moral nature of the soul, and so it's bound to that nature and sets the, the boundaries for the will. And we'll see how the nature of man affects the will uh, in its various states. But it should be noted here that when 
So, for example, when we read in the gospel and mankind and all are called to repent or perish or to obey, it is a real choice that is being offered. And we see this first with Adam in the garden. For example, when God charged Adam, obey and live and disobey and die, that was a real choice that was offered to Adam. And with that choice comes a very real responsibility placed upon the one who's challenged to choose. And of course, in Adam's case, since he was our federal head, and he, since he was our representative in the, the covenant of works, his choice became our choice. And the consequences that he endured, we also now endure. We'll consider also the passages that we read here from Joshua and the challenge that Joshua gives the people, as again, as they have come and as they've claimed their inheritance that the Lord had long ago promised to their fathers. He says, <clears throat> And if it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods with your fathers uh, served were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Again, this was a real choice that Joshua was presenting to the people. He was challenging them to choose the Lord or choose idolatry. You've got to choose one. And there's the, the real choice. And of course, we see that they uh, you know, even made a covenant. They were going to do this. We we're, were going to serve the Lord. We're not going to serve these gods. God's delivered us. And of course, we know exactly what happens. Uh, well, Judge, or Joshua ends here shortly. And then the book of Judges begins. And uh, so we see how all that eventually worked out. But at this point, they were excited and eager to serve the Lord, even though Joshua was repeatedly warning them that this was a serious choice. And it was a real choice that they were given. They were fully at liberty to choose whom they would serve and obey. And God, and again, Joshua makes it very clear, God would hold them responsible for the choice that me, that they make that they make because no one can force them one way or the other god wasn't going to force them one way or the other they were free to choose however their ability to make these this choice is dependent upon the condition of their natures their nature and their moral standing before god provides boundaries or limits within which their liberty and their will can function. And so they can freely choose, but they can't choose contrary to what their nature dictates. Now this may seem rather bleak, but the great blessing is that the nature of man can be changed, and as it changes, his ability to choose changes as well. And to help us understand the changes of nature and the conditions placed upon man's ability to choose, theologians have often spoken about and referred to what we call the fourfold state of man. Uh, man in his innocence, man in bondage or in sin, man in redemption or grace, and man in the state of glory. First is the state of innocence. The Confession, paragraph 2, says, Man in a state of innocence had freedom and power to will and to do that which was good and well-pleasing to God, but yet mutably, so that he might fall from it. 
And so this was the state of that mankind was first created. When Adam was created, he was created in this state of innocence. His nature was good and was holy, and he was fully at liberty to choose and do what he desired. And the key point to remember is that man was created good with the ability to choose and do good. But man's state or nature was also mutable. That is, it could change. Man wasn't created so that he was forced to choose one way or the other, either good or evil. Though he was created good, he was given this freedom to choose either good or evil. So again, when Adam, when God gave Adam the law of the covenant in Genesis 2, but the, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam was presented with this choice. Obey and live, disobey and die. And though desires to do what was good and right in God's sight, because he was morally good, Adam did have the potential, though, to turn away from that and choose evil. God didn't force Adam's hand one way or the other. He could choose good and to obey, or he could choose evil and disobey. And with God's command, Adam had great reason to continue to choose good obedience, though again, at any time, he had the same freedom to turn away. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 7, Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And that's exactly what happened with Adam. So there's no violation of man's will and responsibility. If God created him uh, with a good nature that was changeable by his own free will. Now this is essential when we consider the state of the fall and, and misery and sin. Because Adam freely and willingly chose to disobey God. In fact, even though Satan had first tempted Eve and she sinned, Adam had an opportunity to refuse to disobey God. He could have said to Eve, No, I don't want to take a bite. Even as Joshua presented, he could have chosen the Lord. He could have chosen to serve the Lord. But instead, he listened to his wife and freely disobeyed and freely sinned against God. God didn't make him sin. The devil didn't make him do it. Eve didn't make him do it. Adam freely chose. But this choice, of course, had great ramifications for him and, and his descendants. He would still have a free will. But you see, now his nature has changed. Before he had a, a, an upright nature and he could choose, freely choose, good or evil. Well, now his nature has changed. He now has a sin nature. Created with the ability to choose good or evil, now his will was in bondage. To his sinful nature. Though the will is bound, though his will is bound, he can still freely choose. Again, he can still freely choose, but he can only choose within the boundaries of that nature. 
And so again, he's still responsible for his choices, for his actions, and for his sin. And since his nature is sinful, the free choice that he makes over and over and over again is to sin and to continue in rebellion against God. Right? And this is what Isaiah refers to in Isaiah 64, saying, And all our righteousnesses are like filthy rags. Right? Even the good that we do that we think is you know, a, a, a civil or from even a, a human perspective seems like it's good. Well, unless it's done for the glory of God and faith, it's not good. It's nothing but a filthy rag. And it's a work that would stand to condemn us. Well, this is what Martin Luther referred to as the bondage of the will. That fallen man can choose freely, but you see, again, this choice isn't absolute. For fallen man can only choose within the bounds of his nature. And since man is born sinful, all his free choices are bound to sin. And so this is the will of man in the state of sin. Again, the confession says, man by his fall into a state of sin has wholly lost all ability of will to any spiritual good accompanying salvation. So as a natural man, being altogether averse from that good and dead in sin, is not able by his own strength to convert himself or to prepare himself thereunto. And of course, this is what the Apostle Paul was driving at in Romans 3 when he quoted from Psalm 14, saying that as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. And so our sinful nature keeps our will. We again have freedom to choose, but only in accordance with our nature. Well, the popular free willism of much of evangelical Christianity is that free will is absolutely free. And it supposes that man's choice can actually override his nature and do violence to his nature. That a sinner can choose to do a good thing. That a man who is dead in his sins and trespasses can suddenly choose to be alive. But the free will of Scripture in the confession says no. The dead man first needs to be made alive. He must be uh, quickened and uh, regenerated in order for him to believe. He has no ability to believe on his own. And this ability must be given from an outside source. Because their ability is given by God's grace through the work of the Holy Spirit. Which this then leads to the third uh, state of man's nature. And thus his will is the state of grace or redemption. Again, the confession says this, when God converts a sinner and translates him into the state of grace, he frees him from his natural bondage under sin and by his grace alone enables him freely to will and to do that which is spiritually good. Yet so as that that by reason of his uh, remaining corruption, he does not perfectly nor only will that which is good, but does also that which is evil. So here we have the sinner is converted by God's grace alone, not by a willful act of man. Of course, the scriptures are clear about this. John 1 verse 13, uh, 
that he were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then Paul follows that up with Romans 9, 16. So then it is not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Right? So our salvation is God's work, not our work, not because of our will. Man in his sinful nature can't choose something that's against his nature. He needs again to be enabled to do so. And that enabling comes through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one who quickens our hearts and brings us from death into life. Now it should be noted that God doesn't force anyone to come to Him. God draws no one kicking and screaming against their will. Just as there will be no sinful man who will desire to be saved but can't, for no sinful man, of course, has no such desire, so there will also be no one saved who doesn't want or desire to be saved. When the Holy Spirit quickens a dead sinful heart, immediately that individual has a desire to come to Christ, and they do so willingly, because their will is now free to be able to choose this which is good. He isn't compelled, but he is drawn by God's grace into fellowship with Christ, because the work of the Spirit in him has enabled him to do so. We also need to note that in this state of redemption or grace, an individual is now enabled to do spiritual good leading to salvation, as well as to be able to do true good works to the glory of God. Uh, Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And God desires of His children that they seek and do good works for His glory. This they do freely and willingly. Again, it's not earning our salvation to do so, but it's confirming our faith, and we do it to please and serve and glorify our God. But we also have to remember that even though we're redeemed, because we have a remnant and that now we're able to to do good and to serve the Lord and to choose good and to will to do good, but because we still have a remnant of our sin nature in us, we don't do that perfectly. We don't uh, perfectly do good. We don't always choose to do what is right and good in God's sight. We still sin, and of course that's part of the battle that rages within us. Paul says in Galatians 5 uh, that we read earlier, for the, fl- for the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. And of course in Romans 7 he uh, says something very similar and talks about this battle. That what I want to do, I don't do. And that what I don't want to do, that's what I do. And that's what's going on here is that there's a battle. He has the desire, he has the ability but because of the remnant of the sin nature in him, he doesn't always choose to do that which is good and right. We still sin. And so in some ways, our situation becomes somewhat like Adam's, and that we're now, we're now able to choose, freely choose, and to do good or evil, right? Because of our new nature in Christ. We can certainly do good. We can also do evil. That's what Adam was created with. But the difference is that we now have baggage that Adam originally didn't have, right? Adam was created upright, and he was created good and holy and righteous. 
and he could still choose to do good or evil. Well, we are now redeemed in Christ, and we're renewed and given a new uh, nature, become a new creation in Christ. And yet, because of that remnant of the sin nature, we can still choose to do good or evil, as Adam did. But the greater tendency in in us uh, often is toward that which is evil because of that remnant of the sin nature. And of course, it's the work, continued work of the Spirit in us and the uh, work of God's grace through the work of sanctification uh, that we can become more and more holy and gain more victory over, uh, over sin and, and uh, do better at uh, choosing good over evil uh, in our own lives. But this struggle back and forth, being... Uh, wanting to do good and still doing evil and uh, not wanting to do evil and looking to do good, this will one day change as we then come to the final state of mankind, and that is glorification. Uh, Paragraph 5 of chapter 9, the confession says, The will of man is made perfectly and immutably free to good alone in the state of glory. So we see two essential points here. First, in the estate of glory, which comes after the resurrection and in Christ's glorious and everlasting kingdom at the end of the age, our wills are made perfectly free to do good. So our nature is completely and radically changed as we're glorified. We're no longer going to have the hindrance of sin. We're no longer going to have that baggage because of Adam's sin and the the remnant of the sin nature in us. That's going to be completely driven from us and so that we can and that we will choose to do that which is good. And what a glorious thing that that battle, that that daily struggle that we have with sin in our lives now will at that time be over. We will be made perfect after the perfect image of the Lord Jesus Christ. First John 3, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. And so that's the first essential thing, is that we're going to be changed and perfected. But the second essential is that this state, this state of glory, or glorification, is going to be immutable. Right? We are originally created with a mutable uh, nature and will, but this state of glorification is immutable, that it, it's not going to change. Again, Adam was created with a mutable or a changeable will, and because of the fall, it did change. And then in redemption, it changes again. But now, in glorification... Our wills will be changed one last time, but then it will never change ever again. And at that time in glory, we will always choose and do good without any fear of falling into sin. And so that's a glorious blessing that will be that will be perfected, that that battle will be over, and that we will always choose to do that which is good and right and pleasing in God's sight. This will be because our natures will be completely perfected and our wills will be free to choose and act according to that perfect nature. If we have no sin, then we can't choose or even desire to sin. Truly what a great and wonderful blessing this will be 
The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 4, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And that's the goal that we're heading toward, is that perfect status to the measure of the fullness of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is perfect. But, beloved of God, the process begins now. It begins now with the regeneration of the Holy Spirit by God's grace working in us. It begins now as we have and rely upon that grace uh, for greater sanctification, relying on the Spirit's work in us to make us more and more holy, even though we know we won't be perfect in this life, but we keep striving after that perfect goal. It won't be until we stand in God's glorious presence though, that our wills will be complete and be perfect. And this, of course, is the doing of God's grace through Jesus Christ. And I'll close with this uh, from Jude 1, of that glorious hope that we await. Now to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling, and to present you faultless before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> o gracious God in heaven, how we rejoice and give thanks to you for your word and the truth and the instruction that it gives. And as we have considered this doctrine of free will and a proper understanding of this doctrine is, is critical for us. Because we see how wonderfully we were created and yet because of Adam's sin, because he was our representative in the covenant of works, that his sin is now was our that his sinful choice was our sinful choice, and that we bear the curse even as he bore the curse. And that in our state of unrighteousness and sinfulness, we can only do evil and wickedness and sin. And that we are in rebellion against you. And that's exactly how your word describes, describes those who are outside of Christ. And yet you did not leave us in such a condition. But by your grace and abounding mercy toward us, you sent your Son, who perfectly fulfilled the law, who perfectly did everything right, and fulfilled your will. Because his will was submitted to your will. To do all that you had for him. And that he did that for us. Even to the point of the death on the cross. So that we might have the forgiveness of sins. That we might have peace and reconciliation with you. And that now because of Christ. That we are redeemed. And our natures are changed and transformed. That we become new creations in Christ. And that we now have the ability to serve you. To please you. And to honor you. To choose to do that which is right. And yet we are all too mindful of the remnant of the sin nature that remains. That battles within the flesh. That daily struggle that each of us faces. And we just humbly pray, O oh Lord, that you would continue to work your grace in us. This, through the Spirit, that sanctification would be worked. That we would be submitting ourselves to your will. That we would grow holy, more and more holy more and more like Christ each and every day as we look forward to that time of perfection 
and that day when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, and that the fullness of the kingdom will be ushered in, and we shall be glorified, and we shall be as Christ is, and we shall see Him as He is in all His glory, and we shall be perfect and righteous, always doing what is good and right and pleasing in Your sight. We praise You and thank You, Lord, and we look forward to that time, and that time when this struggle is over. We look forward to the time when Christ returns, and we are there in Your glorious presence forever and ever and ever. Father, we just praise You and thank You for these things and for this reminder. And again, we thank You for the Lord's Day that You've given us this day, a day of rest and a day of worship and fellowship. And as we begin to look ahead, the week that lies ahead, may we remember these things and may we be faithful witnesses as we go forth to share the gospel with those even in this community and that You would help us to be those witnesses And that through us, you would be pleased to use that witness to bring many to yourself. We pray all these things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.